people say I am the best boss. The starting premise of The Office is that Michael Scott is pretty much the worst boss ever. He's incompetent, inappropriate, and downright offensive, with the attention span of a toddler and a feeble grasp on reality. Yet shockingly, Michael's tactics produce consistently strong returns for the Scranton branch of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Utica, Albany, all the other branches are struggling, but your branch is reporting strong numbers. Look, you're not our most traditional guy, but clearly something you are doing is right. Michael doesn't even actually know the secret to his success. David, here it is. Don't ever, for any reason, do anything to anyone, for any reason, ever, no matter what, no matter where. So we are going to evaluate Michael's work performance for him. What is Michael doing right as a boss, in spite of everything that appears so wrong about him? Sometimes you have to just be the boss of dancing. I think that pretty much sums it up. I found it at Spencer Gifts. Before we go on, we want to talk a little bit about this video's sponsor, Skillshare. Skillshare is a superb online learning community with thousands of classes about everything. Bitcoin trading, playing guitar, stop motion animation. Click the link in the description below to get two months access to all classes for free. If a baby were president, there would be no taxes. There would be no war. There would be no government and things could get terrible. Being a boss is peak adulting. You're basically parenting a bunch of other adults. But The Office shows us what happens if your boss is an overgrown kid. Babies are drawn to me, and I think it's because they see me as one of them. There are three things especially that align Michael with a kid. One, his love of play and creativity. Two, his total lack of impulse control. And three, his urgent desire for love and approval. A lot of office time gets taken up by Michael's childlike need for play. Sitting in my office with a plate of grilled bacon, call a man twice just to see what was shaking. For him, every meeting is a performance, and he wants it to be a life-changing experience for his audience. People expect a lot from these meetings. Laughter, sudden twists, surprise endings. Michael also has an unconscious creativity in his use of language, much like a kid does. I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I am a little stitious. Tell him to call me ASAP as possible. Occasionally I'll hit somebody with my car, so sue me. So Michael's use of language becomes a mirror of him as a person. Everything he says is wrong, yet something strangely right and delightful emerges from the creativity of his error. It just seems awfully mean, but sometimes the ends justify the mean. The common perception around the office is that Michael's playful antics are a massive waste of time. Holly later discusses the corporate term for this kind of behavior. It's called time theft, and it's the same as taking money from the company. But the show implies that the release we get from playing and goofing around, taking breaks from the drudgery, may actually be good for our focus and productivity. We are office drones. All we do is work, is work. Oh no, your battery fell out. 
We've all been to boring meetings that might benefit from a little Michael Scott pizzazz. His emphasis on creativity represents an important realignment of values in the workplace. The fundamentals of business. Because you're mental if you don't have a good time. As much as the employees love to complain about Michael. Michael, you are the reason I drink. What I hate about you. The two times he actually leaves, the office is suddenly a less warm and happy place. Michael's like a movie on a plane. You know, it's not great, but it's something to watch. You know, and then when it's over, you're like, how much time is left on this flight? Toby's words capture what is so special about Michael's presence. He creates an open, fun atmosphere that understands the magic power of giving play a role in the workplace. The workplace demands that we control our emotions and instincts. But the child, Michael, has an almost pathological lack of impulse control. No! Come on, guys, get out of here. Where are the turtles? Where are they? His totally unfiltered, uninhibited nature. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. Means his team frequently has to babysit him. Yeah, and when Michael gets a broken heart, this whole place comes to a halt. So we're just trying to get out in front of this. That's awesome. You want some ice cream? But this responsibility to look after the boss can bring out the best in Scranton's employees. You know what? Why don't you guys deal with it? But you need to decide. Otherwise, I'm taking the bonus. Because everyone sees him as an incompetent, impulsive child, they rise to the occasion to fill the absence where their manager should be and do their best work. All of the other bosses who come into Michael's seat seem to be a lot smarter, more logical, and more professional. But as managers, they mainly get in the way of employees doing their jobs well. Until we get a new receptionist, I want Kevin on the phones. Phones. Also, there's been way too much wasting time. So Stanley. Yes? Yeah, I want you on top of that, okay? I want you to be my productivity czar. Okay, good. The office actually implies numerous times that the ideal boss would be no boss at all. Why don't we just leave that position vacant? Truth be told, I think I thrive under a lack of accountability. Actually, apart from under Michael's leadership, another period of stellar performance for the branch is the three months when Andy abandons his post as manager for the Bahamas. The branch exceeded its targets over the past quarter. Wow, that's wonderful. Quarter three months, that's how long you've been gone. Michael is the next best thing to no boss at all. His lack of directed adult-like management creates a sort of vacuum or absence that lets people get on with their work. At least no one's actively micromanaging them to make their business worse, which is exactly what Andy does the moment he returns from the Bahamas. It appears my employee offered you a price that he was not authorized to. There is an option in the contract that allows me to back out within 30 days of signing, so I would like to exercise that option. Michael's desperation to be loved can be something of a fatal flaw. Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. But underneath that is a deep desire to turn his coworkers into friends, even family. I'm a friend first and a boss second, probably uh, an entertainer third. We're taught that being professional means having boundaries with coworkers. 
Over time though, we start to wonder if viewing his co-workers as family is another wrong thing he's actually doing right as a boss. Michael's love for his employees is a refreshing change from the corporate bottom line. Let's see Josh replace these people. You think Stanley's growing trees? Well, they don't. You think the world is crawling with Phyllis's and Kevin's? Most corporate types probably wouldn't see that much value in a Phyllis or a Stanley or a Kevin. Dwight almost definitely would have been fired numerous times under any other boss. We have cause to fire you. Can you shut down? Instead, shut down, please. Instead, what I think we should do is strip you of your title as safety officer. No. And as much as the employees look dubiously on his sentimentality, Michael turns them into a tight-knit family over time. I feel like all my kids grew up and then they married each other. It's every parent's dream. Rather than spending all this time with our coworkers being slaves to professional barriers, why not follow Michael Scott's example of treating the people you work with like a family? Not just seeing their productivity and results, but valuing Phyllis simply for being Phyllis. Make friends first, make sales second, make love third, in no particular order. There's also a fourth childlike thing that Michael does right as a boss, and that's believing in his crazy dreams. Michael Scott is essentially a modern version of Don Quixote. Published in the early 1600s, Miguel de Cervantes' masterpiece Don Quixote is the story of a nobleman who decides that he's a knight in an era when chivalry has faded out of existence. So everyone around him thinks he's gone crazy. Don Quixote is famous for charging at windmills that he thinks are giants, just as Michael is always going about his everyday adventures with over-the-top grandiosity. And we are going to reclaim our gift basket! Don Quixote is fixated on the romance of the past. Likewise, Michael is the leader of a small regional paper company in a digital age. Sir, as a company that primarily distributes paper, how have you adapted your business model to function in an increasingly paperless world? Real business is done on paper, okay? Write that down. And while everyone knows that the paper business is headed towards obliteration, Michael doesn't see it that way. You're starting your own paper company. <laughs> yeah. Why? Can you believe? Because I know paper. I know everything there is to know about paper. Do you know that the industry is in decline? Yeah. Oh, God, I practically invented decline, right? right? Don Quixote gets inspired by reading too many stories. And Michael is just as suggestible. Where's Armani? He's on the phone. Too slow. You're not going to Paris. Michael just rented the Devil Wears Prada. Dwight is Michael's Sancho Panza, the faithful sidekick who obediently follows Don Quixote into every misguided crusade. And Holly is Michael's Dulcinea, the farm girl Quixote falls for and reimagines as a great lady. She's the love of my life. What you and Jim have times a hundred. Others may see more of the common farm girl in Holly. I don't get it. I'm sorry. I just, I don't get it. But to Michael, she is perfection. Holly is the best thing that has happened to this company since World War II. It's Michael's dogged faith that he and Holly are meant to be. Holly and I are like Romeo and Juliet, and this office is like the dragon that kept them apart. That ultimately wins her over, despite their separation. Hey, you can transfer Holly back from Nashua. Let me see what I can do. And Holly's own doubts. 
You do this, you know. Do what? You romanticize things. I don't romanticize. No. Michael, you cried at that tagline for a movie you made up. And his happy ending with her tells us to keep trusting in our most outlandish dreams. We know that before Michael was promoted to manager, he was an excellent salesman. His unshakable faith in what he's selling makes him really good at convincing others to believe. So Michael's optimistic refusal to face facts at first appears to be his insanity, but eventually it's revealed to be his superpower. I understand nothing. Maybe what a company in a doomed industry truly needs is a hopelessly romantic leader who won't admit defeat or bow down to brutal reality. You have no idea how high I can fly. At first, viewers might look down on Michael and Dwight and the more deluded characters in The Office. But as the series goes on, we come to pity more the characters who don't have a delusion or a weird, passionate escape. The employees see their work as existentially pointless. I'm, I'm boring myself just talking about this. And they view their office as a prison. What was prison like? Not terrible. Boring. We do the same thing every day. But at least we get outdoors time. You got outdoors time? Michael, why don't we get outdoors time? And this raises the question, is it really crazy to love working at a small branch of a failing paper company? Or is it even crazier to feel like a prisoner of a dead-end job and do nothing to change your situation? Listen to this Don Quixote quote. Does it not perfectly encapsulate the philosophy of Michael Scott? When life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. An office is a place to live life to the fullest, to the max, to... An office is a place where dreams come true. As the American update to Ricky Gervais's David Brent in the UK office, Steve Carell's Michael starts out in Brent's mold as the incorrect, cringeworthy nightmare boss. Is there a term besides Mexican that you prefer? Something less offensive? But in the black comedy style of many British shows, Brent never learns anything or improves as a person, while Michael goes the American path of growing into a beloved, even inspirational character. Never ever, ever give up. If you look closer, though, Michael actually doesn't improve or change all that much. Mm, it's easy, you're. That's offensive. <laughs> it's not! It's not offensive during a roast. Pam Beasley, office hottie. She will do you. <laughs> I would never say this to her face, but she is a wonderful person and a gifted artist. What? Why wouldn't you say that to her face? But also, over time, the story puts more emphasis on the character's redeeming qualities. The David Brent-like characteristics are balanced by a personality that's truly loving and heartfelt. And this basically makes him the antidote to a lot of what's wrong with the corporate world today. Remember when people used to say boss when they were describing something that was really cool? But now boss is just slang for jerk in charge. So maybe Michael teaches us the world's best boss is someone who distracts his employees so they don't work too hard, who makes play a priority. 
brings out the best in those underneath him, values his employees as people, and dares to dream the impossible dream. What a great boss you turned out to be. Best boss I ever had. This is Tanner Christensen. Tanner is a creative strategist, the author of The Creativity Challenge, and he's worked as a product designer at Facebook. We saw that Michael's creative play helps his office be more productive. But if you want to make your own creative dreams a reality, you should check out Tanner's class on productivity for creatives, only on Skillshare. Ideas are easy. Everyone has ideas. But what people don't tend to do is produce something with those ideas. That's why we really love Skillshare service. The classes are taught by amazing, accomplished working professionals in design, photography, social media, business, entrepreneurship, and more. In fact, Skillshare has actually helped us at Screen Prism learn more about animation and design. They offer 20,000 classes about any skill you might want to learn, all for less than $10 a month. Right now, you can get two months access to all their classes for free. But that's only if you're one of the first 500 people who click the link in our description below. It's a great deal, so hurry up and don't miss out.